So, we looked at the first half of this, and then last week was Father's Day, so we took a little bit of a break. So now we're in part two. Uh, let, me, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege and the, and the blessing that we get to read it and learn about you. I pray, Lord, that this sermon, that this message this morning will be God-honoring and God-glorifying. I pray that I get out of the way, that your spirit directs me and guides me. Lord, I pray that you work in the hearts and the minds of everybody here this morning, that we can just put distractions out of our heads, out of our hearts, and focus on your truth and your words. I pray that we're reminded of the love that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And for those of us who don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you work in the hearts, soften their hearts, Lord, to receive your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, towards the end of my sermon, maybe the Holy Spirit was leading me a little bit you know, too aggressively, but I actually ripped a couple of pages out of my Bible. So, um, so bear with me. I think mostly John's intact. It's more like Galatians and Ephesians. Uh, so I just thought it was, it was kind of funny at the end of the service. I was, I was doing my, my ending point, and like five or six pages fell out of my Bible. And I'm like, what? what? Um, again, we're, we're in part two of this, and... and what I want to say as we start off is that there is quite a bit of power in testimonies. And a few weeks ago, or a few months ago in youth group, we went through our testimonies. Stephanie and I shared our testimonies with the youth group students. It took a few weeks, and at the end of the third week, one of the students said, because I said, well, what would you think? And he said, I thought it was good, but I have a question. What's a testimony? I said, you should have asked me the first week. Why are you waiting the third week to ask me this? So as I talk about it, it's important to define terms. Right? So a testimony can be a few different things. It could be a spoken statement. It could be evidence or proof of something. When it comes to Christianity and religion, it's a recounting of a religious conversion. Right? In legal cases, I didn't know if you knew this or not, but going back to even the Romans' times, Someone who's dying on their deathbed, their testimony carries a lot of weight because there's a belief and there's some evidence to back it up that people who are facing death are less likely to lie. I didn't say all the time, I said less likely. Right, so there's a lot of power in a, in a dying person's testimony, especially when it comes to legal cases. The Bible also talks a lot about testimonies, and I'll say this, a lot about even witnesses to go along with testimonies. So in Old Testament law, there was required two witnesses who had an agreed testimony to be able for it to be something of, of legal concern or matter. Also, a woman's testimony did not count in law at that time. And I want to say this, as Christians, right, those of us who are in Christ, who are Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, who have been born again as we looked at John chapter 3, we all have testimonies. We all have a story about who we were before Christ, what Jesus did for us, and who we are because of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, it's just one verse. Peter says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I'll say this, as Christians, we should have our testimonies ready and being able to share it effectively or, or know what we're going to share. Telling people our story, what Jesus has done for us. 
Peter reminds us, right? When people look at us, they're going to see that we act differently than the world, right? They're going to look at you and say, well, something's different. You don't, you don't act how I'm expecting you to act. Why not? Right? And that's the perfect opportunity to bring them to your testimony, right? So there's a power in a testimony. And this morning, what we're going to see in part two of this encounter with the woman at the well, we'll see the power of this woman's testimony and how it transformed a town, a little bit of a recap of part one. I won't give the whole sermon again. And, and Nick, thank you for reading and backtracking that. I thought it was important because we did take a week off and some of you weren't here a few weeks ago. But just as we saw, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I went through when we spoke about how Jesus had a divine appointment. Why did he go through Samaria? It was to meet this woman at the well. It was the right time, the right place, Everything lined up perfectly. It was a divine, God-given encounter between Jesus and this woman at the well. We looked a little bit at her life. She wasn't an angel. She, she wasn't somebody who you'd say, man, I want to be like her. She was a sinner. She was an outcast from her town. She chose isolation because she probably felt shameful for what she did. She was in sexual sin, as Jesus pointed it out. In the verses, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. And the reason why she's at the well in the middle of the day, apart from all the other women, is because she wants to be isolated from them. She probably feels the shame, the looks, and every, the judgment coming off of their eyes and their faces at her. So here we have a woman who's lonely, who's, I would say, lost in her sin. She's, she's overcome by her guilt. And we left off last week's sermon with, with kind of a mic drop moment. I won't drop a mic because it's, it's really bad to do that. Um, I, I've had people do it before when, when I was doing the soundboard, and I'm like, don't, no, don't do it. But Jesus had a big mic drop moment. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. She says, well, when the, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything that's true. And Jesus, for the first time in all this public ministry, tells a woman, a Samaritan woman, who's a sinner, that he is the Messiah. Right, and we looked at that point, we ended it there. Now today we're going to finish the story. If you're a note taker, there's quite a few fill in the blanks. I, hopefully I won't miss them. But we'll look at three main points this morning. We'll look at the woman left. The second thing we'll look at is the father's work. And the third thing we'll see is that the town believed. So left, work, and believed. Or transformed, whatever word you want to use. Let's start reading in verse 27. Jesus just revealed who he was to this woman. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar of water into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So in that first verse, 27, notice the language. It says, just then, at that moment, the disciples came back. If you remember, the disciples left. They went into the town to get food for Jesus, to get food for their rabbi. They were being good disciples, good students of their rabbi. And they return at the perfect moment. The perfect time. They see Jesus, they hear him reveal himself to the woman, and they see the woman's response. If they were a minute later, they would have missed it. 
If they were a minute earlier, they might have interrupted it. And it brings us back to the beginning. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This was a God-given, God-ordained, divine encounter with this woman. And I would say at this time too, right? just the beauty of, of God's power and sovereignty over time, the disciples came back at the perfect time. The perfect time. Letter A in your notes, we see the first thing the woman left was her jar. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 28. So the woman left her jar of water. We know that she was out there to collect water for the day. That was a daily chore, a daily task that women would do. They would fill up, draw from the well, and they'd carry about 40 pounds of water back into their homes to be used for that day. She was out there all alone, isolated from society. Now, I don't know, the text doesn't say whether she drew the water and the jar was full of water or if she didn't get the chance to fill it yet, but regardless of that, we read that she left it. She left it. And and not that I want to harp on this too much, but I think it's worth noting. The good news of the Messiah was more important to this woman than her jar of water that she was or did collect from Jacob's well. What Jesus had revealed to her gave her joy. She forgot to finish her task because something better was given to her. Jesus promised her the living waters. It changed her heart. Now maybe she left the jar there because again, 40 pounds of carrying weight into the town, it would have slowed her down. But not only did she just leave this jar in joy, she left her task, she needs that water to physically live, she leaves it there, and she leaves Jesus to go into the town to bring the people back with her to Jesus. She shares her testimony, her encounter with Jesus of the people. So the second thing she left is she went into the town. She left Jesus, she went to town. Verse 29, or verse 28, And she went away into town and said to the people, and here's her testimony, this is what she says, Come see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Can this be the Christ? The revelation she just received from Jesus that she just spoke with the Messiah was exciting enough for her to now run back into the town where she felt the most shame from the town. Remember, she's she's avoiding people at all costs. She doesn't want to be seen with these people but rather what she received was so much joy and excitement, she goes and tells these very people that she's ashamed to be around. They know her sin. She's been living in isolation as an outcast from the town because of this, because of her sin, but she lays that aside and she shares her testimony, her encounter with Jesus, the Messiah. He's here. I've talked to him. Can we see? Is this the Christ? Come see. Again, here we see an overflowing. Out of the joy that's overflowing out of her heart, she, it causes her to go into town and tell others about Jesus. Her testimony was enough to get people interested in leaving their town in the hot, in the middle of the day, about a half a mile, to go and travel to the well to see Jesus. As we read this, it's both encouraging and convicting, at least to me. It's encouraging because here we see the beauty of God's grace on display. Salvation being offered to sinners. 
salvation offered to the Samaritan woman. But it's also convicting because as I'm going through this, it makes me think, am I excited to share the good news of Jesus to my friends, to my neighbors, my family, the people in my town? When I look at this woman, am I like her, that excited that I overflow out and tell others about Jesus? I have to be honest. I think one of the, the biggest reasons why we don't share our faith is, is we've lost our joy. We, we've lost our joy in the Lord. Right? Remember back to when you first heard the Gospel, when the Holy Spirit moved in your heart, when you became born again, as, as the Bible tells it, when you received Christ. Think about how much joy there was. I guarantee that you had the boldness to share your testimony with everybody you met. Maybe some people actually called you a Jesus freak. Or they said, dude, you're so, you're so annoying. Can you talk about anybody or anything else besides the Bible or besides Jesus? And I want you to fast forward to today. Are we, I, I'm not saying you, I'm saying we, are we still that bold, that zealous to share our testimony? I, I can't answer for you. But I will say sometimes our boldness to share the gospel, it, it can look like a match. And I don't have any matches up here, and if I did, I probably wouldn't want to light it. But for the sake of the an analogy, when you, when you strike a match, what happens? There's this burst of energy, a burst of a huge flame. There's, there's light, but, but over time, what happens? The, it, it starts to diminish. It starts to, what, get less and less and less, and then eventually it, it goes away. It, it dims. I think in the same way, not that we've lost our faith, I'm not saying that, in the same way we've lost the joy. We've lost awe of who Jesus is. We're just saying, the great I am. I, I love the bridge. The mountains shake before Him. The demons run and flee at the mention of the name King of Majesty. It's one of my favorite worship lines in any worship song. I think sometimes we've forgotten the Gospel the power of the gospel, and we've grown numb to it. Jesus dying on the cross is more like a fairy tale rather than actual good, life-saving news. If we really believe that God came down from heaven to earth to die for sinners, to give us living waters, to make a way to save us, then why don't we share it and tell everyone about it? I think we've lost some of that joy. I remember going to Colorado a few years ago on vacation and I'm driving on the highway, and in the distance you see, and I, I think it's the Rocky Mountains, I'm not, I don't know for sure, but in the distance you see the, these be this beautiful landscape of mountains. And I'm staring at it, and I'm like, oh wait, I'm, I'm driving. I, I can't focus on them, I have to focus on driving. And I was talking to someone there, and I was like, how do, you, how do you drive without getting distracted? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, look, look at the mountains. And they're like, ah, it gets old after a while. And I'm like, what? Like, Look at the beauty of God's creation. It's amazing. I think in the same way, sometimes we let our hearts grow numb to the power of the Gospel. We'll see a little later in the text that the, the Gospel, her testimony of who she was testifying about, it transformed a whole town. Remember how this woman responded when she met the Messiah. She dropped everything. She left her task what she needed to survive for the day there at Jesus, ran to the city to tell everybody, and then came back and brought them there. Verse 30. 
Here's the aftermath of her testimony. They went out of the town, that's the people in the town, and they were coming to Jesus. The second thing we'll see is the Father's work. In this next section here, this is a conversation now between Jesus and His disciples as the town people are coming to Him. They're not there, but they're on their way. Not only does Jesus fulfill His divine appointment with this woman, but I love it, He takes the opportunity to also, as being a rabbi, teaching His disciples something. He teaches them something. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Right? They, they went on this journey. They're halfway up to Galilee. Jesus says He's wearied from His journey. His disciples are now back with food. Jesus, we have food. Eat. He says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought Him something to eat? Now, now pause. I, I, when you read the Gospel, right, I laugh at that. The, the disciples are back. Jesus, we brought you food. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, wait, what? Why did we, we go get food? Who brought you food, Jesus? There's a little bit of humor here. But verse 34, Jesus said to them, his disciples, my food, here's the spiritual, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So here we see Jesus' mission. Letter A, Jesus' mission is to do the will of Him who sent me. That's the Father. To accomplish His work over and over and over and over again in John's Gospel. Jesus, I'm going to say this jokingly, Jesus is obsessed with the Father. And I'm saying that with humor because He always talks about God the Father. He makes it clear that He was sent here and why He's here is to accomplish the Father's will, the Father's work. In John chapter 6, we'll get here in a few weeks, in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds a group of 5,000 plus people, He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the next day. In John chapter 10, after Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd, He says, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So from those verses, according to Jesus, the will of the Father and the work that Jesus must accomplish is this, to sacrificially lay down His life on the cross, purchasing us with His blood, so that those who believe in Him may be saved, have eternal life. And that's the good news of the Gospel. That God, Jesus, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and died for us to redeem us through His sacrificial death on the cross. Because of that, because of Jesus, His death, His finished work, we're saved. Not because of ourselves, not because of how good we are, or not because of our parents' faith. It's not about that. It's what Jesus has done for us. As we continue on verse 45, uh, 35, we see Jesus now giving a mini-object lesson. He, he tells the disciples, the harvest is now. The harvest is now. Verse 35, 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What Jesus does right now is he's connecting a farming object lesson with a spiritual truth. As he's speaking to the disciples, they understand that the harvest time for where they're at, the crops around them, is still four months away. They're not ready to be reaped. They're not ready to be collected yet. If you did that, they'd be useless to you. You have to wait for that specific time, four months, to, to physically harvest those crops. And what Jesus is saying spiritually here to his disciples, there's no need to wait to harvest souls for the kingdom of God because the time is now. The time is now. He says, lift up your eyes. Some scholars believe that as Jesus is telling them to lift up their eyes amongst the dead crops that are around them, they see the people from Sychar, the people from the town in their white robes coming towards them from a distance. Uh, again, the text doesn't say that. It, it, it's beautiful to think of it that way. Right? Lift up your eyes. See the harvest. It's now. Let me say this. Now is the time to tell others about Jesus. I know people have different uh, beliefs or, or, or different ways or doctrines of, of how to share the gospel. Maybe you have to have a relationship with them first and foster some time and, and effort and then you could share the gospel with them. But I'll say this, the harvest is now. Now is the time. Ray Comfort, I don't know if you've ever heard of him before, he has a ministry called Living Waters. He has a lot of videos on YouTube where he does street interviews with people and he asks them questions about, you know, if you think you're a good person, do you know if for sure you'll go to heaven after you die? After sharing the gospel with a young woman, he asks her. You can see the Spirit's at work in her heart. She's, she, she's answering questions. She's looking repentant. He says to her, when are you going to repent and trust in Jesus? And she responded with this, as soon as I get home, I will. And he said to her, what happens if you get into a car accident? Why are you going to wait? Let's do it right now. And then he led her to saving faith through sharing the gospel there in a public park bench. Let me say this. If you're waiting for an opportune moment to share the gospel with somebody, the time is now. It's now. It's right now. In verse 36 to 38, we'll continue on here. We see something. In your notes, we see that we should be rejoicing together. Rejoicing together. Let's read verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And there's two spiritual applications that Jesus is making on the one hand, when it, when it comes to farming, the one who plants, the one who sows, is usually the one who, who reaps. It's on their property. It's on their land. It'd be very strange to go to another farmer's land and to sow your seeds there. Why? Because when, they, when, when they're grown, that farmer will reap the benefits of your work, the benefits of your labor, your sowing. On the other side, it'd be really weird to let another farmer go on your land and sow their seed there. Right? They're going to... What Jesus is saying in the spiritual realm here, he's making a point to his disciples. 
they're going to go and reap what others have labored for, the groundwork what others have set, the foundation that other people have planted. Now, I'll put it into sort of language nowadays. There might be someone who you shared the gospel with. We'll use the word sowed. You, you sowed the seed. You planted a seed of the gospel there with that person. It might be years later that they're saved by God because they might hear the gospel from someone else. right? In that sense, someone else reaped what you sowed. And we're, we, we're, we're told right here to rejoice in that. A few weeks ago, I gave the illustration where I gave the gospel over and over again to a youth group student. He went to a youth rally. He heard another youth minister preach. He gave his life to Christ. And I was like, what the heck? I laid all the groundwork. Why does he get, why, why does he get that joy? In that split second, I felt that. I was jealous. But what do we see here? To rejoice together. We're supposed to rejoice. Here's a little bit of encouragement. Keep sharing the gospel. Share the gospel even if it seems like no one's listening. Share the gospel even if the person you're sharing with has already heard it. Our mission as Christ followers is to share the good news to everyone. The second side of this truth is that both the one who sows and the one who reaps are to what? To rejoice. We're to rejoice. Parents, maybe some of you have spent countless hours training your kids in Christian disciplines and doctrines. Maybe you've shared the gospel over and over and over again. And for some of them, maybe there's fruit that they're saved. And for others, maybe there's not. I want to say this. Keep teaching them the gospel. Keep living out the gospel to them. On the flip side too, parents, if, if you send your children away to a summer camp, right, and they get saved at a summer camp, praise God. Right? You, you sowed, you planted, and what? The person at the camp reaped. Right? There's rejoicing together. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to a church that's a mess. This, this church is a disaster. In this section, they are divided. Yes, they're all followers of Christ, but, but in, a sub, in a sub kind of leading, they're like, well, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of a guy named Apollos. No, I'm a follower of this person. What they did was they divide themselves on who they followed instead of being unified as being followers of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says this, What then is Apollos? What then, what is Paul? Their servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, and here's the, the text, God gave growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We need to remember it's God who saves souls, not us. He, he might use us as instruments to accomplish his will. He does that for, for our pleasure, but for his glory. He's the one who transforms hearts. The text says, others have entered uh, others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now Jesus might be talking about some of the Old Testament forefathers, some of the heroes of the faith, maybe Moses. He might be alluding to John the Baptist and the work that he was doing, the baptism of repentance. He could even be alluding to himself. Right? Others have labored, you're entering into their labor. When I read this, there, there's a, a sense of unity, a sense of, of teamwork. We all belong to the capital C Church. 
right? The capital C, the global church. We are all in Christ. We're all on the same mission to make disciples. And the third and the last thing we'll see in this text is we'll see that the, the, that the town believed. The town became transformed. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of Jesus' word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And what we're going to see is the power of a testimony. The power of a testimony. What was this woman's testimony? Verse 39. Eight words. He told me all that I ever did. She didn't know deep theology. As a Samaritan, she had a limited revelation of God because the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. Nowhere in here does she have any sort of deep doctrines. What does she tell the town? She tells them eight words. And I'll say this, yet God still used her testimony. And do not miss that point. God worked through the eight-worded testimony of this sinner. And it really echoed Jonah's message towards the Ninevites. If you know, if you know that story at all, the prophet uh, Jonah, same thing, eight words he tells the nation of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. There's also a famous preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He was believed to be a very dry public speaker. Very monotone. He would, he would write out his sermon word for word. He wouldn't deviate from his manuscript. Right? This is all believed. There's not a whole lot of proof, but it's, it's believed that he was not a very animated, energetic preacher. Yet, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it led to revival. It led to revival. And here's what I'm getting at. Why am I sharing these examples? The power is not in the testimony itself, but rather who you are testifying about. Let me say that again. The power is not in your testimony, but who you are testifying about. That's Jesus Christ. Don't read this story and think how great this woman's testimony is, but rather look at it and say, look how God used her. Look how great our God is. As Christians, I said this before, we should know our testimonies. We should always be prepared to share the gospel with others and how Jesus has transformed our lives. The power is not in our story, but rather what God has done for us. What this means is that we should know our testimony. If you look at in, in Ephesians chapter 2, you can mimic how Paul set up Ephesians chapter 2. He tells, you, he tells us who we are before Christ, what Christ has done for us, who we are after Christ. In the same way, our testimony should mimic and reflect that. Don't be afraid to share it. There's power in it because of who you're testifying about. Our God is powerful. Our lives should reflect the attitude of this woman. What was her attitude? Come and see. Come and see what this man has told me. Come and see Jesus. 
in verse 40 and 41, letter B, we see hungry souls and we see the grace of Jesus. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his words. Now the Samaritans from the town, they come to Jesus and they ask him something. Pretty, a pretty bold request. Jesus, can you stay with us? Why, why is this important? We looked at two weeks ago, the Jews and the Samaritans had a deep racial hatred towards each, other's, towards each other. The most self-righteous Jew had a belief that even if you stepped foot into a Samaritan town, it made you ceremonially unclean. That's how evil these people were. That's how unclean the Samaritans were to some of the Jews. Now they're asking Jesus a Jew, right? even rewind back to to what the woman says to Jesus, "For, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She says, why are you talking to me, Jesus, in the beginning of the story? What we see is now they're inviting Jesus, what, into their town, into their lives. And what do we see? Jesus stays those two days. Grace, that's grace. Jesus stays. And not only that, but I'll say this. Think of his disciples. They might have felt awkward. They might have been like, Jesus, are we sure they aren't, they're ceremonial unclean? You know, we can't be here. They're our enemies. Look at the example he set for his disciples. The gospel is for everybody. Jesus came for all who, who, who believe in him. Here we see the hungry souls, the Samaritans, wanting Jesus. They want the living water. And we see the grace of Jesus. He stays there for two days. They see his grace, his love, his compassion for them, for the, for the Samaritans. At least his disciples see that. And through his conversation with a non-Jewish woman, Jesus gave an entire non-Jewish village the opportunity to receive salvation. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the power of Jesus, which will be letter C, the last point, the power of Jesus. Verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now we're seeing the hearts and the faith of the Samaritan people. It's no longer because of her testimony and what she said. They've seen it for themselves they talked with Jesus and they concluded that He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is who He says He is. Now the text doesn't say it, but I would have loved to see what those two days looked like and what Jesus did for the Samaritans. Did He preach sermons to them? Did He heal people? Did He share more heavenly truths? Did this woman get restored back into her community? Again, we we don't know. It's not in the text. All we know is this, this town was transformed by the power of Jesus. And I want to end with, with this. Don't downplay, don't doubt the power of Jesus. There are so many times that, that I miss out, I'm, I'm talking about myself, and I'll say we, but, but for me, that we miss out on gospel conversations because we think We either don't know enough about the gospel, about the Bible to share it, that's fear, or because we think somehow the people we're talking to won't be affected by it. And that's a lack of faith in the power of God and his word. When these doubts start to sink in and set in our minds, I want us to think about this story 
of the Samaritan woman because of her faith and testimony in Jesus. Right? A whole town came to him, received his word, and believed in him. As a bit of encouragement, God can use and will use you for his glory despite all of our weaknesses. There are countless stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God uses those who are the least qualified, the least likely, the ones that you're like, God, you, you know who this person is. Why wouldn't you pick someone better? He uses those people to accomplish his will. We need to remember the power of God, the power of the God that we worship, and actually step out in faith and live what we believe. It's easy to just believe something, but now to what? To live it out. One more comment. Again, as our church, as we seek revitalization, this story encourages me. Why? It took one person who shared their testimony, their encounter with Jesus, and because of her willingness to share it and the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, a town, a community was transformed. I'm, I'm, I'm looking around. There, there's more than just one of us here today. That, that's the good news, right? We're, we're already ahead. There's more than just one of us here today. We're surrounded by a community. You look out any window, you can see a house. Maybe through the bushes, you can't really see that way. But we're surrounded by a community that is dying of spiritual thirst. And we have the living waters right here. God's Word, the Gospel. I hope and pray that we're encouraged by this story. We use it as a reminder for who Jesus is and the power of our testimony of Him. One final thought. <clears throat> Here's a challenge. As we have this community barbecue coming up, right? I, I strategically planned it and prayed, and, and my hope is that, what? We can have people come to our church, and we can meet them. We can share our stories with them. We can build a relationship. We can invite them to service the next day. We can have gospel conversations out on the field while eating hot dogs or playing bocce ball or playing cornhole, throwing a Frisbee. That's my hope and my prayer. So my challenge is, if you're going to come to this barbecue, next week we'll have some flyers to hand out. My hope and prayer is that hand some out. Invite one person. Even if you're like, this person will never step foot on church property. Step out in faith. Right? Don't limit the power of the gospel. My prayer is that people will come and for us to share the joy of the gospel with them. Let's pray. God, once again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all the promises, for everything that we read <clears throat> about who you are in it. Lord, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for the encouragement, and we see the power of the gospel, that it can transform a whole town. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here this morning, <clears throat> we don't limit your power. And what I mean by that is that we don't live, or, or what I should say, we don't live with a lack of faith. I pray that we can boldly 
and zealously share our faith, our testimony with the people around us. I pray that you use New Village Church right here in Lake Grove and the surrounding community that they can come to us and see that we're a church obsessed with you, Jesus. We're a church that's reliant fully on you and the living waters you gave us. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace and your amazing love that you came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for us. I pray that never becomes a fairy tale story, that it never grows stale or numb in our hearts and our minds, that we can continue to be in awe of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, give us the power and the boldness to stay on mission, to evangelize and to make disciples. We love you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.